welcome to Flower Friends. This is a weekly podcast where we cover different topics about growing, designing, and selling flowers. I'm your host, Sarah Nayani. On this week's episode, I talked to my flower friend, Margaret Ullman Hess from Ballard Urban Flowers about seed starting. But before we get to the interview, a few updates from this week. It's been a really busy one. Um, I had subscription deliveries at the beginning of the week, which are wrap bouquets and face arrangements that I deliver weekly to my subscription customers around Seattle. Those are filled with as many of my own flowers as I have in bloom, uh, which this week was armfuls of tulips, so many tulips, um, daffodils, and then bluebells. And then as needed, I will supplement with locally grown foliage and flowers from the market. So I like to make a really full bouquet and I love to include things that I'm not necessarily growing because uh, I just have a small urban space. So I love to go shop at the market and add some really cool extras. And and then I doubled up this week and did some Passover and Easter weekend deliveries. And it was the start of wedding season for me too. I made a spring elopement bouquet and boutonniere for a couple that were tying the knot at a courthouse. Elopements are so romantic. <laughs> I love them. I always wanted to elope, but we ended up having a big wedding. <laughs> the groom's favorite flower for the elopement uh, was tulips, and this couple was all about color, so it was a really fun bouquet and boutonniere to do. For the bouquet, I used tulips and daffodils and grape hyacinth from my garden, and then added roses and scabiosa, spirea, and a few other tidbits from the wholesale market. This coming week, I'm gearing up to do florals for a big wedding on Saturday, so I've been washing and prepping vases, making little checklists and schedules so I can stay organized, basically doing everything I can get done before I start working with the flowers. And today I've been working on a sweet pea tunnel in my backyard. Um, Our dog, Francie, was helping me dig. (laughs) But last weekend, my husband, Vikram, helped me put some T-posts in the ground, and then I used metal fencing to go up over the T-post, like an archway. And I did a few of those in a row. So it's basically like a six foot archway. So we got the basin last weekend. And then today I used um, corrugated metal edging. Basically, I put two beds in along the base of both sides of that archway. And then I planted the sweet peas right into those beds. And those sweet peas have They really needed to get into the ground. So I was excited to finally have a little bed to plant them in. I have to say I'm pretty happy with how my sweet peas look so far this year. The past couple years, I started them inside under grow lights, and they were kind of leggy and wispy as seedlings. They didn't have strong stems and lots of leaves around the base like they do this year. So when I put them out last year and they were kind of spindly, they got blown around in the wind a lot, and they didn't grow that tall. I think it was the combination of not having the strongest start as seedlings and then not having the sturdiest frame to tie them in on. And so they kind of blew around a little bit, I guess. And um, that basically the plants didn't grow that tall. And then also the stems of the individual flowers were fairly short. So I used stems mostly for making arrangements. And then as the plants were slowing down um, midsummer, I would actually cut that whole actual vine, not just the flower stem, so that I'd have taller sweet peas pretty much as long as I wanted to cut them. And that was great for tall bouquets. I think the vining curly look with the tendrils is amazing. So this year, I decided to take my cues from nature and do a cold germination for the sweet peas. And what I did is in January, I put some soil, some seed starting soil into a 50 cell seed tray 
and I would put two sweet peas per cell. And then I put them out in January. I watered them and put them under a little zippy, like a plastic cold frame that I had attached to a picnic table in our backyard and a a little space that gets some light. And I put them out there and they took so long to germinate. It was a month from the time I sowed the seeds until I saw like the first sprouts coming up. Some of the cells took even longer than that. And that's because it was so cold that I think the plant was focusing on the root rather than the greenery until it warmed up a bit. Now they're, they're much bigger, but basically what I did is once I saw some green starting and I would check underneath and see if I could see any roots poking out of the bottom of those kind of shallow 50 cell trees, those aren't as deep as I would normally like a sweet pea. So I put them into, I bumped them up fairly early into, you know, little four inch pots. Then I just kept those right on our picnic table uh, under the zippy, um, which I would like open and close with the weather. If it was really cold or it was about to snow, I would close it. But otherwise it was mostly open to get the airflow and the plants did so much better this year. So they germinated really well in Seattle temperatures in January. It, It ranged everywhere from like 17 degrees to like you know, in the 40s, um, the first few months of the year. And so I know that's pretty cold, but I thought that was cool that the plants look so much stronger. It seems like they focused on their roots and there's a lot of leaves at the base. They're just bushy and healthier looking. So I hope they do better this year. I have a you know, hopefully a better start on the seedlings themselves and then a more sturdy frame to tie them into that I think will help the plants to make longer stems. So we'll see. It's a trial. I'll post a photo of it on the Flower Friends podcast Instagram just so you can see the the progress. And then I know it's a little bit late to sow sweet peas this year, but I just thought in case that's helpful to anyone else, the cooler germination temperature really helped me uh, this year. So if that helps you, great. And a lot of nurseries have sweet pea starts. So if you didn't uh, plant your own, don't worry. You can find them and uh, get a little sweet pea tunnel of your own going or just a little, you know, trellis. For my last update, before we get to the interview with Margaret, I just wanted to mention this amazing program in Seattle. It's called Facing Homelessness. My neighbor and friend works there, and I'm just really inspired by the work that they do and the approach that they take. One of the programs within the organization is called the Block Project, and they build homes for those experiencing homelessness in residential backyards. On May 25th, they're having a fundraiser called the Block Party, Facing Homelessness Block Party 2022. And I just wanted to encourage listeners to consider attending or donating to that amazing event. My business, Grow Girl Seattle, is involved in a very small way. If we have subscribers that are out of town for a week, they have the option to donate their arrangement to one of the Facing Homelessness clients. So I just reach out to my friend and say, hey, we have some extra flowers. Can I bring them by? But more important than flowers are resources. So if you have the time to volunteer or a little bit of money to donate to the cause either in Seattle to facing homelessness or to a local organization in your area. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Today, I'm excited to welcome Margaret Ullman Hess from Ballard Urban Flowers. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about where you're located in your business? Yeah, we are a um, small urban 
flower grower in North Seattle. And we focus on growing unique, super fresh, super local blooms and providing them to our neighbors and to local florists. I am lucky enough to buy some of those blooms from you. So <laughs> I know how local, fresh and high quality they are. <laughs> Um, and so what types of products do you sell? Like, how do you sell your flowers and what does your customer base look like? I try to focus on varieties that you just can't find in the grocery store that, that florists are having a hard time finding maybe top quality because they might degrade with the transportation to a wholesaler. I pretty much split the business in, in two. Part of it is for retail. So I have a bouquet subscription and I do a flower stand. And then I also provide flowers to florists uh, like you and, and several others and try to focus on growing textures and colors that make things really unique. I really love the artistry of creating bouquets. So in addition to absolutely loving growing flowers, I love the, the art of pulling together the different color palettes and the different pops of texture that can just change a bouquet from something that's just a couple of flowers to something that's really magical. So I focus on trying to grow varieties that do that, that allow me to do that. That makes sense. I recently saw your like blue and white color palette that you're working on. And that looks so gorgeous. And another thing I bought from you is frosted explosion grass. Do you have a couple other examples of some of the color palettes you love working with or a few things that you use for texture? Yeah, there's there's a variety of China Aster that I absolutely love that I can't find the seeds for anymore. And so I last year saved that I only had one plant come back from the seeds because China Aster are notorious for their seeds not keeping more than a year. So it was a two-year-old set of, of seeds and I planted out and one one plant came back and this it's called Bengal Bengal Frost Rose, I think is the name. Anyway, it is this curly and swirly and very textured white flower that just glows and it takes on a blush color as it gets a little bit um, more aged and it was spectacular I saved seeds and I just planted them outside and and they I had pretty good germination rate so I'm really excited to see what they come back and look like yeah they could be orange <laughs> <laughs> genetics who knows how it's how it's going to come back um but I'm really excited about that. And that's something that you just can't find normally. I love adding in grains like black tipped grass is a really beautiful one as just a little accent into bouquet because the awns, awnings of them are this deep black color. And so they look very architectural in a bouquet. Uh, and then dahlias, um, you know, I grow a lot of dahlias and the best they I love when the form of them is so crisp. It's almost like mathematical, right? So very crisp, crisp lines where the shadows that are created behind the petals add to that beauty element to the flower. So you get that at a dimension. It's not just the color of the petals, but those shadows create lines as well. And those are just stunning in bouquets. So those are a few. So could you tell me a little bit about what your garden setup looks like at your house and at your neighbor's house? Yeah. So I, um, I love challenges. And for me, when I started this project, I loved the challenge of how do you grow lots of things in a really small space and to do it, you have to be very focused on succession planting and utilizing every last corner. And my, I sit on a 4,000 square foot lot 
and my house is on part of, like a good chunk of that. <laughs> I did have a very small growing space here and had grown vegetables for many, many years. Then decided to to try flowers, and my neighbor across the street saw what I was doing and said, "That's a really cool project. We're not using." part of our front yard right now. Would you like to grow here? And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been so lovely to have an expanded growing space. I'm now on about 2000 square feet of growing space, you know, including the paths and everything. It's a mixture of uh, raised beds and then growing in ground um, in a very typical urban setting uh, for fire growing every bed is different. Every width is different. Every length is different because you're just cramming everything in. And so from a logistical standpoint, it just drives me crazy every year trying to think about planting plans. (laughs) And I wish that I had, you know, two acres and long straight rows that were exactly 50 feet long or whatever it is. But I also love the challenge of how do you do this in an urban environment where we live and where my daughter goes to school and, you know, we've got connections here and how do we do this in an urban setting as well? And so I'm grateful that I've got the the two plots um, to work on this year as well. Yeah, you have a really beautiful setup. And I agree. It's like, at least for me, it's kind of every season adding new beds. And maybe you learn something from the beds you had the season before or <laughs> and so everything ends up a little bit different year over year. But that's the beauty of it. It makes the flowers more special, I guess. <laughs> Um, so could you give me a, uh, a little bit of info on how you kind of plan out your year and utilize those beds to their maximum? Yeah, we, I try to fit in as many successions into a, a piece of ground as I possibly can in a season. So I try not to have bare earth for a variety of reasons, soil health, but then also, um, bare earth is, is not producing anything. So I, primarily focus my flowers on summer blooms being on such a small area. I have a really hard time fitting enough space for the traditional woody plants or um, the peonies and the roses and whatnot that really fill that June and uh, May and June timeframe. So I do some spring and then really focus on summer. Um, and so my an example of some successions that I might do, I've got one bed this year that I overwintered ranunculus in. I will harvest those in April, maybe by early May. Um, I do save my corms from them. So I let them sit in the bed until they fully, the greens have fully died back. Um, and I will pull those out in late June. So essentially the bed's been filled through late June. And then I will have pre-started some basil and celosia to stick out in that bed. And then I'll have a late summer harvest off of that for, for greens and for flowers. Another example would be, I've got a bed that had been um, cover crop over the winter and I just cleared that out and planted snapdragons in mid-March. I'll harvest those kind of early to mid-June. And then that gives me enough time to get a sunflower crop in for sort of a late August, September harvest. And once again, I start those in plugs as well, so that I can get a little bit of a jump start um, on the timing. So uh, every every bed has been accounted for, and try and squeeze in as much as I as I possibly can. And do you practice crop rotations as well? So are you also trying to do the Tetris game of like <laughs> this was in this bed and <laughs> oh gosh, yes, Tetris is the right word. It it is very intense and in a small context like this, actually very impossible to fully um, do crop rotations. 
because insects that can fly are going to travel between the beds. But if you're talking about soil-borne diseases or say a certain crop pulls some really depletes the soil of a certain nutrient, you don't want to repeat that one. So yes, I do try and move things around as best I can. Uh, and then just really focus on rebuilding my soil health um, every single year so that that can actually help each of the plants be, be stronger and healthier. Great. And so one of the things I really wanted to ask you about today, um, you're such a pro at growing. I also grow flowers, but I'm just amazed at like the variety that you pack in and how good you've been about just being more on point and focused with like which flowers you're going to do, which color palettes you're going to do, especially last year, I was like, I have to have something of every color. And then I had a lot of flowers that didn't necessarily match. So I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about kind of planning today and also about seed starting. And so I was wondering if you could just walk us through like how early you usually start your seeds. For me, in our growing environment, my first seeds that I sowed this year were snapdragons in late January, and I did put my first plants outside um, the last couple of weeks. The first ones got, got planted out, and I would add a huge caveat and say, listeners may be coming from lots of different places throughout the country or, or world, and it really, really depends <laughs> when you start your seeds based on where you are. A lot of people um, will message me and say, when do I, when do I start seeds? Because the seed packet says X number of days from last frost date is when you're supposed to plant the seed out. And yes. And the equation is actually a lot bigger than that. So you'll want to also really be thinking about your temperature. So last frost date doesn't then indicate, is it going to turn 80 the next week? Or is it going to be like we have in Seattle where it's a slow, cool spring where heat lovers really, really don't like it, <laughs> but cool loving plants absolutely love it. Yes. Um, so you want to think about your temperature and how that extends out. Um, if you've got a slow spring like us, you want to think about maybe delaying some of your heat crops. So even though our last average frost date was um, just a couple of days ago. Um, we could still get one from now, but it, the average last one, it was a couple days ago. Boop. Hey, it's Sarah popping in after recording, just with a side note to say that I recorded this interview with Margaret a couple weeks ago and Farmer's Almanac has the last average frost date for Seattle on March 21st. If you live somewhere else, that's a great resource to look up what your last average frost date is. Now back to Margaret. I would still hesitate putting anything um, that really is frost sensitive outside or really getting it started until the temperatures are warmer because they're going to thrive when it's warmer. Um, another thing to consider is light levels. So we're up here in the northern uh, on northern latitude and we have several months of the year where we're below 10 hours of light daylight a day. And plant growth drops substantially once you get below that 10 hour mark. And so you're not gonna actually see plants do much growth until you crest that threshold. So for us, we have a later start. And even now we don't have a huge amount of daylight compared to say Southern California, they are able to have, even if the temperatures are the same, they can have stronger growth right now than we can. So I delay things a little bit because I wanna give them the strongest start they can. Um, the other thing is when does the summer heat start? I know some areas of the country don't really have a spring. It's very short and they immediately flip into sought, you know, summer heats. So that's going to really factor in as well. So when I start them, I'm starting them with the idea that I want to have 
cool loving plants growing really strongly when we've got our cool weather up until May. I mean, in reality, the really heat doesn't typically kick in until July. So I'm trying to plan my zinnias and summer stuff to not really get into their production zone until closer to that heat zone so that they can be healthy um, and produce at their best rates. Um, you also want to think about when is when do you want them to bloom? Because you can get really excited and sow everything all at once and they're all going to bloom sort of at once as well. Yes. <laughs> Inundated. And then you're going to say, hey, August came around and where are all my flowers? Oh, wait, they're done. So that can be a really tricky part as well. I do a ton of record keeping and I know that that's not always everyone's jam. It's totally my jam. I love it. I have this, you would not be in any way surprised, a huge Excel sheet where I'm tracking year to year. When do I sow something? When does it get put outside? What was the temperature? I mean, tracking everything. And that's a scientist to me. I absolutely love that. But I think that even if you're not going that in depth, it's really important to track, well, what worked and what didn't work for you. And so because I've been doing all this tracking and knowing when I sowed something, but then when I can harvest it, I've been able to find little nuggets like um, because our springs are so cool and the light levels are low that I actually don't get things to, to be at harvest point at the date that the packet says. So my first sowings of the year say, um, the packet might say, it'll be ready to harvest in 90 days. If it's the first succession, it's, I add an extra month onto that because I have found that it takes an extra month for them to get up and going. So this is all just through record keeping that I've been able to learn these various things. So I, I do a lot of, of fine-tuned record keeping uh, year to year and that, that helps me, but also means I don't have to think about it as much every year. I just look and say, well, what do I do this week? Well, this is what I did last year. Great. It worked. Perfect. Let's do it again. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I've been a beneficiary of your record keeping because we've been meeting up monthly since we took the Florette workshop together. And you, I always am trying to pick your brain about, you know, when you're planting things and, and what the temperatures are looking like. Have you noticed since you've been keeping these records and gotten more into flower growing that you've been just naturally more attuned to sort of the rhythms of the seasons and like temperatures and, and just you know, light things like that, that it just comes more naturally to you to sort of notice and be connected to nature in that way. Very much so. And that is the part that I love. I actually, my career got started by building hiking trails years ago and was out in the mountains just year round, um, and then shifted over to, to native plant restoration. And you're being outside, you're so in tune with the seasons because you need to know when the blizzard's going to come, when you know, when is a certain plant going to leaf out and it's no longer a good time to plant new varieties of that one out? Or um, how does the drought impact whether or not you are going to tackle a restoration project or hold for a little bit longer? Um, I've always been really in tune to that. And that is something that I really missed when I shifted more to a desk-based job um, for a while. So I'm really excited to be back in touch with that again. And so what does your seed starting area look like? Well, I have a very understanding husband and daughter who let me take over parts of the house and the garage for certain chunks of the year. It started out just as a little area in my laundry room. And now I have a giant rack and grow light set up next to our dining room table. There's another one in the garage. Um, it's, it's a bigger operation. Is it absolutely needed in order to start seeds? No, 
but I really like to get everything really dialed. And at the scale that I'm doing now, I find this is really useful. So um, the, the quick answer is I use grow lights in a variety of different temperatures. So in the house, houses, you know, 70-ish during the day and down in the 60s at night. And then I also have different grow lights in the garage where it's going to be closer to 40s, 50s as the temperature range in there because I want to get plants germinated in warmer temperatures inside the house and then moved outside uh, into the garage where it's still protected, still a little bit warmer, but they can grow out in a temperature range that's a lot closer to what is, is outside, but without the threat of frost. So I can grow them out slower, longer there. I can hold them a little bit better. I used to germinate, do everything in the house, and I have found that the plants did not, there was a little bit more of a shock moving them outside, even with the climatization that I was doing and, you know, getting them habituated to the outside, outside temps, they had grown enough of their lives in a warmer temperature that they were like, what the heck just happened? It's 50 outside. And I'm like, it's a balmy 50 degree day. It's beautiful in Seattle. <laughs> and they, they had a, they were struggling. So I find that the two different temperature ranges are really useful for me. Uh, I primarily use soil blocks um, for seed starting and I do grow in some cell trades as well. Um, I was thinking about this ahead of time, knowing that we were going to talk about seed starting. I was like, I feel like it's important to pull back a little bit and think about, well, why do we start seeds inside? And I start almost every single seed that I sow inside, except for some that are just like, they absolutely hate it and they have to be direct sown. But I start everything inside. And because I have such a small growing area that I don't want gaps in my field. I want uniform planting. So if I were to direct sow, not everything's going to germinate because that that's just how nature is. Not every seed is viable. So you've got holes in your planting. And if you've got a big giant field, that may be less of an issue, but in an urban environment, I want to cram as much as I can. I want to know that plant is fit, uh, every space is filled with the plant, but also that it is a strong, healthy plant. So I focus on giving them strong root system so they can contend with any field pressure that they actually have. Like a slug comes along. If they're a little bit bigger, they can probably survive a slug attack um, or have the root system underneath to regrow the leaves. Um, so I, I have the, I'm small enough in what I grow that, you know, I'm not on a quarter acre, a half acre, I'm smaller scale. So I can really focus on developing very strong seedlings to go outside um, I know that growers that are growing in a bigger area, just you run out of growing of germination space. So you have to put out little tiny plugs. Um, so teeny tiny plants in the ground. I have the benefit that I can grow them out into two inch soil blocks and be nice and tall and healthy before they go out. And I can essentially coddle them. And that's how I can get really, really strong plants because I just don't want to lose with a small growing area. I don't want to lose opportunity of blooms to some kind of a weakened plant that was put out too early or something like that. Yeah. And it also, I imagine if you're planting out really early, like I have early snapdragons that I just put outside as well. If a few of those get taken down by slugs, I guess I could stick another succession, a few plugs of snapdragons in there, but they'd be much smaller than the plants around them and they'd be fighting for light. And so I imagine with the system that you have, you're also by planting them out bigger and hardier from the start, you're losing less space in a small growing area because every plant that you're planting out is more likely to make it. Yeah, exactly. And it is definitely a battle in a way of trying to balance getting them to be a strong plant, but not having them root bound or deprived of nutrients. So it, I can't just 
stick them under grow lights and let them be. I have to make sure they have the right level of nutrients and that they're not getting so root bound that they are going to be really not able to extend their roots out into the soil when they get into the, into the new spot. So it is a little bit of a, of a trade-off. Are there any seeds that you're starting outside besides direct seeding, but I'm just thinking about the sunflowers that you mentioned that you might put in, in June, are you still starting those inside or are you starting them outside? I'm trying to remember, what do I do? I, I know I start them inside, but I think I do them in the garage. Okay. And so it's like similarly acclimating, but maybe a little bit cooler than it might be outside at that time of year. Yeah. And those grow so quickly. I'm putting them in 50 cell trays and within two weeks, I've got to get them in the ground. Yeah. Uh, last year, I lost some successions because I got busy and I didn't plant them soon enough. So this, this is the downside of it. <laughs> Just stick it in the soil. You don't have to think about it again other than keeping it watered. If you are putting them in trays, you have to dedicate the time to keeping them watered and fed and planted out at the right time. Otherwise, you can lose it. So I, I lost many successions of sunflowers last summer. So lesson oh. learned. Not every Everything is trial and error, definitely. And better to lose sunflowers than some other things that take a lot longer to restart. (laughs) So what are any examples of something that you might direct seed, meaning that you're going to put the seed right into the ground rather than starting it inside or in your garage in a cell or a soil block? I have found things like, um, bread seed poppy and nigella, um, love in the mist to be better sown direct, but our soil stays so cool that sometimes it means that I have a really late flowering from them. So I tried this year to put them in cells and they sprouted and I kept them nice and cool. And they're just hanging out outside and they're teeny tiny. And I'm going to try it. I don't think that they like root disturbance, but it's always worth it to try some experiment. I will do some direct sowing as well. And nasturtium um, is another one that prefers direct sewing. If I remember right, I, I push it anything I possibly can stick into a tray that I can get to be a little bit bigger. I mean, we've got intense slug pressure in all of the growing areas, so <laughs> I can get it out a little bit bigger. Otherwise I'm like, Oh, look, a baby plant came up and next day it's gone. <laughs> so in terms of, I know you mentioned snapdragons, what else do you kind of have on the docket either growing inside right now or what's like next up to sow for you. And with the caveat that this is a Seattle timeframe and that you're, you know, growing these plants out longer inside than some of the listeners might have the ability or space to do. Totally. Totally. So caveat, it is mid to late March right now. I am still focused on hardy and half hardy annual seedlings. And so the first wave have already gone out, but I also want a succession plant. So I have my first, for example, snapdragon, snapdragons first round was started in late January. They just got planted out three weeks later. I planted, I sowed another round of snapdragons and those ones in a week or two are going to be ready to be planted. Um, and then putting them out at, mm, they're probably three inches tall by then unpinched. So pretty good size plants. And then I, this weekend, if I have time, will probably sow another round of snapdragons as backup. I don't actually have space for them. So (laughs) I like to sow some extra as insurance in case I lose something because last year I found that I did not have things sown. And then a big hole appeared in the field because 
I mean, a, a rabbit ate one of my first successions of oh, flowers. The worst. <laughs> and I had nothing to put in its place. So I like to sew a little, now I'm learning, always keep sewing, always keep sewing, have a little something. So who knows if I'll actually be able to grow out this last um, succession of snapdragons, but I'll at least have them available should something fail. I've got something to put in. So really focus on the cool season stuff, just because we don't really start. I mean, our spring is 50s, maybe we'll get into the 60s through most of April and May and June, even um, January, like January is kind of the saying around here in Seattle. It's, it's typically cool. The last year we had a heat wave. So who knows with climate change, how it's all shifting around, but um, July is really when the heat comes. So in a couple of weeks is when I'm going to start my zinnias, celosia, um, and that's a very early end for me. That's a very early succession. And when I plant those out, I'll still have for frost cloth over the top of them. Um, one to protect against accidental frost, but more likely just to trap a little bit of extra heat close to them. It still lets enough light through. Uh, I use a lot of a season extension in order to be able to kind of time the crops appropriately so I can get good deep roots before the heat of the summer comes, but not um, have things get really cranky because it's too, I mean, it rains a lot. So things can, if they're not healthy and they're stalled out, they can actually rot out because we get so much rain. You said you use a mix of seed trays and soil blocking. Um, could you just give us like a very high level primer of what the differences are in those and, and how you, you know, are you finding yourself preferring soil blocking for some things and not others? Yeah, I have been doing soil blocking for five or six years now. Cause I was doing vegetables before this and I took a year off from it. And I said, I'm just going to do cell trays. Oh man, I lost a lot that year because I just had my system really fine tuned around soil blocks. So I've come back to them again. What I love, so the premise is with a soil block, it is a, a metal tool that essentially stamps a cube shaped um, block of soil essentially that you put your seed in. And so there are no plastic walls around it. So if you think about planting into a tray, as that seed grows out, the roots are going to start to circle around in the soil in there. And so you're going to want to be able to plant it out very quickly so that you don't have that root boundness uh, occur. With a soil block, the roots actually get air pruned. So as they grow out to the edge, they can't grow when they hit air. So they stop, but it stalls and they, they stop and they wait and they wait and they wait. And as soon as they hit the ground, boom, they immediately start growing again. So you have a lot easier transition in transplanting. They're going to um, get their roots deeper into the soil faster than you would with a plug. That said, they take a lot of time to do. Um, and so I know some people are switching over to a new product called a windstrip tray that is available. No Sink Farm has them that it mimics soil blocking, but is in a tray format. So you can fill up a tray really, really rapidly rather than compacting the potting soil and stamping it into the shape. And it, it does take a little while to do. Um, I still really love it because for me, what I do is I sew into little tiny soil blocks and then it's so cute. You pick them up and you stick them plunk into a bigger one. There's a whole perfect little hole that's the exact same size. <laughs> you stamp out into, you know, you go from a, a three quarter inch size, a little tiny one and into this like two inch size block and you plunk, drop it in. And then it grows up. And what it means by being able to bump it up that way is you can have different soil that you're growing in. And that's the part that I really like the flexibility on. When seeds are germinating, they have every last nutrient they need in the actual seed itself. We're talking about when it's germinating and when it's when it goes all the way up to its first set of true leaves. So 
Uh, that stage doesn't need a lot. And that's a stage when you need high humidity. So if you toss a lot of um, compost or, or fertilizer or anything into that soil, you're going to have algae growth on the surface, which all of us get. And it's just not great, right? You might worry about damping off and, and whatnot. So what I like is that my, I can start my seeds in a completely fertilizer-free, nutrient-free mix. They can get going. And then when I plop them into the bigger soil block, that's when I can start adding in the, a little bit of compost, a little bit of fertilizer. I can start adding in, I use um, a worm casting extract to add some microbiology in at that early stage, which is really important to help develop the plant's connection to the microorganism community that they're going to get used to in the actual soil in the yard. I love soil biology. I can go on for a long time about that. Um, but I, I love with soil blocking that it gives me the flexibility and that I can fine tune to the needs of, of the plant for that. I didn't think about that from the perspective of soil blocking. I only am working in trays right now. I just haven't graduated to figuring out the whole soil blocking system and you can add nutrients, but it's mostly through like watering, adding some supplement to watering. But I didn't think about the fact that with soil blocking, you could add compost or other things right into the soil that you're bumping the smaller soil block up into. So that seems like a great, a great benefit that you're mentioning. Yeah. I also do the liquid fertilizer as well. So it's, it's okay. Nice. Um, but I have learned not to water them with liquid fish emulsion when they're still growing in the house. That was a mistake. A little stinky. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. My husband's like, what happened? <laughs> anyway, do not do that if you're growing in your house. Like, please wait until it's in the garage, at least. <laughs> That's a great tip. And so what are some of the seed companies that you found to be really reliable? Where do you order a lot of your seeds from if you have a few top recommendations? I really like Johnny's. Um, they're back on the East coast. They do a really thorough job and they're really focused on commercial growers. And so, although they've got a whole retail arm, um, as opposed to just a wholesale. So you can, they do a lot of trialing of new varieties and they are focused on what has the best stem length and holding power for the cutting industry, as opposed to just what is going to look really pretty in like a English cottage garden style that may not actually perform well with vase life or with the stem length that you need for say a full length bouquet um, or to sell to a florist. So I, I think they've got a great selection there. I do also um, like to look and see what Floret has coming out, especially all of the new breeding work that Erin's doing. Um, so, and she finds little uh, really kind of interesting textual. The cress is, I love to use cress and we must think of it as a salad green, but if you let it shoot up, it has this beautiful textural quality to it. I've got a, a dried uh, branch of it in my house that is just stunning from last season. And uh, she is one of the few places that has a lot of really unique varieties of cress. And so I like to go to her to, to get my cress. Um, Uprise, Uprising Seeds is up, I believe, out in Bellingham area. And they're also really lovely. And I found some gems from them. These last couple of years have been really odd as far as seeds go just with the pandemic going on and with global shortages of labor and shipping and everything that goes into that 
Uh, I've been ordering seeds at a very different rate than I have in the past. Typically I wait until the winter and I think through, you know, what worked for me last season, what new varieties do I want to try? And then I order around the winter timeframe. And with the shortages, I have been ordering much earlier in the season, um, in the fall even, which really is kind of pushing it because some seeds, like I was mentioning about China Aster, they don't last forever. And so if you are getting a seed too early, it might already be a year old. And so then by the time you're using it, it's a year and a half old, or maybe even two years old. And so how, how long is that germination rate going to hold really high? So finding seeds has been a little bit more challenging recently, but I'm hoping that as the global economy reshifts back into a new pattern, um, we're not going to have the same issue for the next growing season, but this growing season, if there's a variety that you like, get it right then do not wait to bundle up a big order in order to put it in. Um, I have lost out on some varieties because I waited to bundle. Yeah. And just for listeners, like the seed packet will usually say packed for 2022 or whatever year it's packed for. And so that's a way you can kind of know, but I'm doing the same thing where even, you know, I definitely started in the fall and summer last year, if there were varieties that I had to get my hands on or another good way, I think to do it is, if you see something on Instagram that you really want to grow and you're like, oh, that's new and exciting, I'd say go ahead and try to get a packet of it sooner than later, even if it's for the, if you buy it in 2022 to grow in 2023, the germination rates won't be as good and it depends on the variety. But I think that's good advice for people to just, you know, maybe grab something if it's really important to you to grow. But also it's sort of seed mania, Dahlia mania right now with all growing. It, so yeah. I don't want to encourage that, but I also think if it's important for people, <laughs> they might want to snag yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good approach to it. And I like to have some varieties that I come back to year after year that I know perform. And if it doesn't perform for me, I cut it from the list, which can be heartbreaking. Yes. Um, one that I had to cut this year that I'm so sad about because I personally absolutely love them are Icelandic poppies. Oh my goodness. They're so beautiful. And they bloom at a time of the year when I don't have a lot of other things blooming. So I would rather kind of shut down my operation for a little while and gear up for the summer season. They're one of the few things that are coming in, in May and June. So I decided to cut them in addition to the fact that you have to harvest them so many times a day. And when you're running around with a preschooler, I have less bandwidth to pop out there and harvest them just at the right, at the right stage for harvesting. So, um, anyway, you can, you can, you, you will have to cut things, but then I also make sure every year that I have a dedicated small area of where I grow for new varieties to try that I may have no idea how to germinate them or will it even work? Or is it even long enough of a stem? Or will I even know how to, how to grow it? Will even people want to buy it? Yeah. Okay, and that is an area that I absolutely love to just play with and try out those new varieties. And I might, I tried a new variety of salvia this year where I literally have six plants. That's it. That's it. But if I really like it, I can grow more next year. That's awesome. Oh, I can't wait to see how it goes. Um, and so for sort of beginning growers, like if there's kind of home gardeners or people that don't have a lot of experience with sowing seeds, are there a few varieties that you would recommend that you think might be kind of easier to get off the ground that germinate well and are fairly easy to take care of and and, you know, maybe you could, maybe they would be starting it a little bit later so that they don't have to have a whole system in their house. Yeah. I think that it's important to think about biggest bang for your buck with a flower. So 
cut and come again varieties are really probably the best beginner's choice because you put the plant in the ground and you're able to harvest off of it for a month, maybe two months, maybe even longer. Some examples would be like zinnias. Um, those are a great classic cut and come again variety. Straw flower is another um, where you are able to get a lot of stems off of a single plant for a long period of time. So you're not having to do a lot of succession planting behind it. Um, you may want to do like I do two rounds, two successions of zinnias, and sometimes in a year I might get three successions in. So you might do a little bit, but it's not like sunflowers where you harvest a whole batch that one week, and then you have to start a whole nother succession in its place, and it's a lot more seed starting. So if you're able to minimize your seed starting and have those ones that keep going. I actually really like sunflowers as an easy one as well, because you literally could just direct sow it as long as you don't have rabbits. Um, rabbits are what took mine out, so protect against rabbits if you're going to do sunflowers. Um, but they're really, really easy to grow. And there's a lot of really versatile colors coming out. So if you really like the bright yellows and that, that can be really useful in the fall, but there are a lot of softer, more muted colors coming out as well, including a new peach one that I'm going to try this year, which I'm excited to, to see what it, what it actually looks like in real life or the, versus just the photos. So sunflowers are great. Rebecca and yarrow are also um, really easy to grow and will produce um, a decent number of stems and usually a second flush. So you'll do, you'll get some flowers early in the summer and then some again late in the fall as long as you deadhead. But I would say that for the beginning grower, it's just really important to think about what are the conditions that are very unique to where you grow and lean into those. Okay. So do you have a very hot summer? It might be a short summer, but it's a really hot summer. Great. Lean into those heat lovers that are going to thrive in that environment. Um, do you have a later start to your summer? Well, lean in on some of your spring crops then, because you're going to have cool enough temps, whereas others, the country, the ranunculus are going to blow out really quickly and not give a lot of stems because it gets so hot, but you can have an extended ranunculus harvest or something like that. So I would say figure out what is your unique growing condition. You can figure that out by just talking to growers in your area or local nurseries um, and figure out what's unique and then lean into that. I love that advice. And maybe check out neighbor's gardens as well of like what looks successful or beautiful and have it as an excuse to chat with them a little bit about it. Make some flower friends, if you will. <laughs> um, and then what about like, because you're an experienced grower, you've been doing this for a while for maybe a more advanced grower, someone who's selling their flowers. Do you have any just really great finds that you've been excited about and you'd like to share with people? I would say that it is, it's the same thing. You have to figure out what your conditions are. And so what I, the finds I really like may not actually be the right for where you're growing, but I would say as you get more advanced, the thing to, the skill to unlock is strategic succession planting. So really get your timing dialed on whatever varieties you're trying to grow so that you don't have gaps in your growing season. For me, that's actually what I have gotten the most excited about as I've gotten more and more experience under my belt is how can I better optimize with certain varieties? And then there's also the cracking the code of each variety is grown differently. So think about it. These are all hybrid, typically hybrids, although some um, are not, that are from all around the world. They get plunked up from wherever they've gotten habituated to and dropped into my garden, essentially. <laughs> my garden might not be as humid. 
as they're used to. It might not have the right drainage that they're used to. The growing conditions of how to start them might be totally different. Um, for example, I had a really hard time growing China asters and jewels of opar the last couple of years. I just couldn't figure it out because I was starting them the exact same way that I was doing other things. I mean, I almost gave up on China Aster, even with that beautiful variety that I saved. I was like, do I even want to do this next year? Because they're just, the plants just aren't as healthy. So I did some additional reading and realized they need a warmer period for when they are growing out as little seedlings. So I was doing it what I normally did. They germinate in the house and they get bumped out to the garage. They have a slow wake up out there and then they get planted out. Well, they were cranky. Put it that way. They were very cranky at, at that happening to them. So I'm this year I moved them into the house and grew them out bigger in the house before then getting them acclimatized outside to move outside. And the asters look stellar this year. Good. And the juice of opera is like finally putting on some growth to it. And maybe I'll actually get a decent harvest this year, which is exciting. Yay. Um, but it's, it's about like cracking the code on some of these that are a little bit more difficult that may not fit into like zinnias, you stick them in the soil, they're good to go, you know? And there are some other crops that are like that, you know, once you figure out how to work with the teeny tiny seeds of snapdragons, they're not too difficult to get going, but there's some that are a little bit more complex that you need to learn um, what they, what they need and what growing conditions they're used to learn their love language. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, specifically about zinnias, I came over to your house last summer and I had never seen, I didn't even know that zinnias could grow to five or six feet tall and the size of the flowers, the health of the flowers. I know that zinnias can be pretty easy for beginner growers and it's something that we all grow but are there any tips that you have of like how you get them to be so big and beautiful? I know, you know, the longer period inside, really thinking about the health of the plant, the things that we've talked about so far, but if you have any other tips for them, I'm sure we'd all love to achieve your zinnia status. <laughs> <laughs> Zinnias are fun. They are definitely fun. And I would say that it is one, you have to figure out their love language. So yes, they love heat. So they're going to get cranky if it's going to be a, a long, cool period of growth outside. Um, you might get more powdery mildew that way and other things just because they're not as, as healthy. They don't like root disturbance. So like just thinking through those elements of it. But I would say that last year for me was an interesting experiment in soil health as how it related to zinnias. I grew, I think the zinnias that you saw were a grown in an area that I have been really caring for the soil and trying to build up the microbiology community in that soil for a long time. And yes, they were massive zinnias. In another area of the garden that I did not show you, <laughs> <laughs> they barely hit two feet tall. Okay. And it was because it was a soil that had not yet had as much work done on it yet. So I joke that I don't actually grow flowers. I just help build good soil and the soil is what builds flowers or is what grows flowers. So soil biology is a big, big focus for me. Um, I could probably do a whole giant episode just on that. But like the, essentially when we think of conventional growing, and this is how I got started growing as well. You think of it almost as like making a cake. 
okay, pour in the ingredients. You need this ingredient to, to cause it to rise and this ingredient over here to bind all the molecules together. And you think about it that way and you mix everything all together. So when you go out planting, it's how I used to do, you would tell up the ground to get it all loose because it was all compacted from the winter. And then you mix in your fertilizer and whatnot. And then you stick in your seed and you're good to go. And as long as you water and there's enough sunlight, those are all the ingredients you need. Just the fertilizer, the sunlight and water and your plant will grow but it's actually missing a really key ingredient. And the whole field of regenerative agriculture is what is focusing on this right now. The missing ingredient is that relationship between your plant and the microorganisms in the soil. Because really distilled, boiled down version, the plant we all know does photosynthesis and it creates the um, carbohydrates um, to, to feed itself, but it actually does not hold on to all of them. It sends a lot of them out through its roots to in an exchange with the microorganisms in the soil. And that could be down at the fungal level or bacterial level, but it could also be, um, you know, you think of a worm, a worm is a giant version of all of the microorganisms that live in the soil. There's lots of even tinier, tinier, tinier ones. They, in exchange for getting the carbohydrates will then go and mine additional nutrients and bring it to the plant. So if a plant is stressed by a disease or something, it actually can send out a signal saying, I need X, Y, and Z to help me recover. They can pull that in. But if you're constantly tilling up your soil or disturbing that microorganism community in there or not, um, not doing things to actively strengthen it, that relationship is broken. So now the plant only can access the fertilizer that you have directly applied into the soil. It can't access any of the other deeper nutrients that it might need. And so it's not gonna be as healthy. Can you grow good plants? Yes. Can you grow thriving plants? No, you have to rely on the microorganisms to help you get to that thriving level. And that for me is really, really important. And I had areas where I had strengthened the soil to the point, that's how I got six foot tall, five foot tall zinnias. Um, the area that I had just expanded into in my neighbor's yard that had been lawn for a very, 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 very long time. Um, it's going to take a couple of years of active work to rebuild up that soil community again. That was the area with the two foot zinnias. So I put down a lot of compost recently and I'm going to work on adding more worm casting extract and um, delving a little bit into Korean natural farming and, and some of the other extracts that you can put into the soil to help reinvigorate the microorganism community that it's still there. It's just not very strong and it, we need to get it back up to strong. Well, I'm just constantly amazed and the relationship between what's happening in the soil and the plant is obviously such an important part of growing flowers. So thank you for starting that with us. We'll definitely have to have you back to do a whole episode about that. And we're going to have you back to do dahlias on this first season. So can't wait to talk to you about that. And in the meantime, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Yeah. Um, we're on Instagram, um, Ballard urban flowers, We've got a website. We're a little bit on Facebook, but primarily, um, we're, we're doing a lot of updates and everything over on Instagram. Great. Well, we'll check you out there and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Margaret, for joining today. Thanks for having me. I'm so lucky to have Margaret as a friend and a neighbor. She lives about 10 blocks away from me. And then we're just in touch all the time about what's going on in the garden. And she's a wealth of information. So if you want to get some of her tips and tricks, I highly recommend following along with Ballard Urban Flowers on Instagram. 
Margaret will post like what she's up to this weekend, what she's planting, how things are coming along. And it's just a really helpful resource for me and for other growers. The song of the week this week is Vincent by Don McLean. It's a song that I always loved growing up. My mom used to put the Don McLean album on the record player. And I vaguely knew that it was about Van Gogh, but I feel like the song just hits different when you're an adult and if you know his whole life story. It's just the most beautiful song. Um, Another thing I wanted to recommend is there's a podcast on the New York Times, The Daily Podcast, that came out last summer can't remember when it was, but I'll try to find it and link to it in the show notes. But I think it was a Sunday read and it was called like the woman who made Van Gogh. And it was about Van Gogh's sister-in-law and how she brought his artwork um, kind of into the art community and really made him famous. So I highly recommend listening to that because it kind of talks about both his life and her life and the family legacy. So really incredible podcast. And I feel like if you listen to that and then go back to back Don McLean and James Blake, just you'll have it on repeat. It's going to be emotional. Just buckle up for a good cry. (laughs) So thanks so much for joining me today and have a great week. Bye. Starry, starry night.